Well, I know many of you know Mark Twain, an American author and one of great wit. Uh, One time he claimed that he conducted an experiment where he put a dog and a cat in a cage to see if they would get along. And after a time, they did. And, and then Mark Twain said he put a, a, a goat and a bird and a pig in the cage. And they too, after some adjustment, got along. Why he chose those three, I have no idea. And then he said he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Methodist in the cage. And soon there was nothing left alive. Typical Mark Twain wit. And, you know, there's uh, some humor there, but it actually comes from a a bit of truth for him personally because Mark Twain grew up in a Presbyterian church and then later attended a a Baptist church. And he experienced conflict in both of those churches, both of them ending up splitting over the issue of slavery. I think it somewhat embittered Mark Twain. Dwight Pentecost tells of a church in Texas that uh, was undergoing a church split and they were each faction was suing one another in order to obtain the church property. A reporter decided he wanted to investigate the, the cause of that split and so he went and talked to various people and he found out that it essentially started when one of the church elders was offended about the portion of food he was given compared to the person next to him. It is funny, but it's sad, you know. I mean, I too have gone through a church split as a leader in a body. And, you know, of all the things I've experienced in my life, that still has been one of the most painful and draining and difficult experiences I've ever had. I I still feel shame over the poor testimony that we were to that community. In fact, that church, that same church, split again less than a year later. And so within one square mile, there were three churches that used to be one. Not the kind of church planting that God is interested in doing, is it? Very sad. Unfortunately, conflict in the church seems to be pretty common. A recent survey that was done uh, indicated that those who had left the church had been questioned about the reason as to why they left. And over 60% of those who had left the church recently had done so because of a conflict with another member or a conflict within the church that had not been resolved. In Calvary, we are not immune to this, are we? We're not above the potential for these types of things to happen right here. And I know there is conflict going on right now. I know there is conflict within marriages, within some of our homes, within members or between members here at Calvary. And if left unchecked, this conflict will not only lead to to division here, but, but worse, it will bring disgrace upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will grieve. It will affect emotionally the heart of God. And it will damage not only our witness to this community, but our witness to our own children. In fighting between believers, do you know what message that sends to the world? It tells the world that with Jesus... There's nothing special. Jesus can't really change anything. Jesus isn't powerful enough to be able to help, to be able to bring peace. Jesus, as I said, cannot make a change. That's what Mark Twain thought. That's what he saw. And that's why Jesus was so earnest in his prayer in John 17 that the Father would bring unity, just as he and the Father were one. And that is the unity of which Paul speaks of and which we're going to return and look at today here in Ephesians 4. 
Because as we talked about before, unity is a priority, the priority in the church. So if you could please stand with me and we'll read chapter 4. I will read chapter 4 from Ephesians, starting in verse 1. God says through his servant, Paul, Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, the key instruction here. So we talked about before, the the key verse in this section is verse 3, where Paul calls us to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's because of, of the cross. And when a person repents from their sins, when they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save him, and, and in Lord Jesus Christ alone, when they commit to follow him for the rest of their days, when they trust in his finished work on the cross, not only is that person forgiven, not only is that person saved and converted and changed, but the Holy Spirit then puts that person within the community of believers, with fellowship with God and with one another. And Paul tells us here, right, what's the first priority to have a worthy walk, to have a walk that matches what he has done within our hearts, to have behavior that's consistent with the change that God has brought about, that's befitting our salvation. What's the first priority? It's to maintain or preserve unity. That's the first thing that Paul mentions. That's what he talks about, because the message here in verse 4 is that because we are one, therefore we should live as one. And brothers and sisters, it is a complete contradiction. It is total hypocrisy. It's an absolute denial to claim that we love God, that we're in fellowship with Him, and then do things that tear down His body, that bring about conflict and division. That's a complete contradiction to what He has done. Promoting unity is the opposite to the message of the cross. The cross is what has brought unity. The cross has brought reconciliation. The cross has brought peace between God and man and within us. So our first priority as followers of the Lord Jesus is to preserve, to maintain that unity. And that's why verse 3 says to be diligent, to be zealous, to to work hard, to, to make every effort to preserve that unity. And if you're in a conflict right now, You need to set everything else aside and make it your priority to be reconciled. That's the most important thing. More important in family devotions, more important in reading your Bible. Jesus said, if there's, you know, someone has something against you, I don't want you to come to worship me until you get it fixed. That's pretty high priority, I think, on pursuing and preserving unity. 
Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Don't let Satan use it as a wedge within this body to dishonor Christ. Here in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, Paul shows us how to diligently preserve the unity of the faith so that we would be walking in a worthy manner. Verses 1 to 3, he gives us the path to unity. In verses 4 to 6, the purpose of unity. And verses 7 to 16, the provision for unity. Let's begin looking at the path to unity in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Last week, we zeroed in on that first quality of humility because that is indeed the foundational quality, the most important attribute in order to be preserving unity within this body. Right? Without humility, there'll be no patience. Without humility, there'll be no gentleness. Without humility, there will be no forbearance. It really is the the key attribute, and that's why we spend our time there And if you remember, here's our little review. Genuine humility is cultivated how? What do we need to dwell on? The crickets are out. What's the first one? Dwell on who God is. Dwell on who we are as utterly dependent creatures. Dwell on Christ, His example, and the cross. And dwell on one another. That's how humility can be cultivated within our hearts. And when I think of humility, I was thinking about this this week. Hudson Taylor comes to my mind. I mean, here was an amazing man, a missionary in the mid-1800s. He went to China. And you know what he did? Knowing that he was going to be going into a poor country and not wanting to be a, a typical missionary in his mind who came in with all this money compared to the people around him, he decided to live in poverty before he went. He purposely did not take the amount of money that he could have in order to support himself. And then when he got there, much to the consternation of the other missionaries there, he shaved his head and he put the back of his hair in a ponytail and he wore a a hat and and the garb of a Chinese teacher because he wanted to reach the culture. Even though the other missionaries around him thought he was being foolish and that was beneath him to do such a thing. I encourage you to read the biography of Hudson Taylor and you will see a man, a humble man, a man who dwelt on Christ's example and a man who knew God's greatness and gave preference to others. Humility in verse 2 is the key. And then Paul adds to that, he says right after that, gentleness, gentleness. Now gentleness here is meekness, but not weakness. It is strength under control. Gentle is what I used to tell my my kids when they were young and they were handling a small pet. You know, gentle, gentle, because what do little kids typically do with these poor creatures, right? You know, dogs cowering in the corner. So I'd say, gentle. See, because they had great strength compared to that little animal, but they needed to control it. And that's the, the idea with us. We have great strength, ability to do damage, to do harm. We need to have self control. Gentleness restrains. That strength and shows care instead. It takes energy that can be used for harm and uses it for good. That Greek word for gentleness is often used. It used to describe a soothing wind. Other examples, it's used to describe a healing medicine or a cult that had been broken. In regards to the human quality of gentleness, it's a mildness of disposition, the quietness of character, courtesy, empathy, care for others. Right? It's the soft touch, the calm voice, the listening ear. Gentleness is so critical to preserving unity. For gentleness, it returns kindness, even in the face of opposition. 
fact, uh, it's that calming influence when things get tense or conflict begins to, to brew. When I think of gentleness, the verse that pops into my mind right off the bat is Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, and a harsh word stirs up, right? What a great passage. You know, if, if, we, just, if we just took that one verse... And practice that one verse. If we spend our time meditating on it, memorizing it, reciting it to ourselves, putting it into practice, don't you think that would make a change within our relationships? That one verse. That verse alone. That if someone came to you and spoke in harshness or anger or sinned against you, that your response would be gentleness. That you would be soft. Not weak, but under self-control. That you would be mild. That you would control the things you want to say or do for the sake of unity. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you answer gently when spoken to in anger? Do you respond in gentleness when sinned against? Yeah, I know it's hard. But so many fights and hostility and conflict, wouldn't it be diffused? Wouldn't it be even eliminated if we just simply would practice this attribute of gentleness? Brother Kempis taught us so well from Galatians 6 a couple of weeks ago. In verse 1 where it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. A lot of times we look at that passage and we think that the person, it's a trespass or a sin being committed against someone else. But you know what? Even if that sin's being committed against you, you are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. When your spouse or your child or your brother, your sister in Christ has sinned against you, you need to work at helping them to be restored to God and to you. And do this gently and humbly rather than harshly, right? Because remember, you and I are both prone to sin as well, aren't we? We're both prone to sin against others. Maybe even have done so this week with someone else in this room. How would you want to be treated? Right? We so desperately want people to treat us gently. How do we treat them? To be gentle in the face of being offended or sinned against, again, is not easy. What does it take to be able to do that? Look at the next word. Patience. (laughs) Great patience. As one person said, patience is something you admire in the driver behind you, but not in the one ahead of you. (laughs) Speaks to my heart, brother. (laughs) The word for patient here is most often used in relation to God. God staying his wrath, withholding his anger against sin. For us, patience means to restrain vengeance, to restrain anger, even in the face of being wronged or sinned against. The patient person doesn't give way to their passions. Patience is a quality that, you know, you read these verses that have these lists of attributes, and sometimes there's maybe one that just really knocks you down, really dings you, really brings conviction. This is the one that did it for me in this list because I struggle with this. I struggle with being patient, especially in my home. When others don't meet up to my expectations or when they offend me or interrupt my schedule, I struggle with, with, not being, har- with being harsh and being unkind and responding in an unkind way. How about you? How patient are you? 
especially when you're wronged? Are you quick to respond? How much patience do you extend to those in your home? If your spouse or your child or your roommate or your parent were asked, you know, if you were a patient person, what would they say? Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, was once told by her husband, I marvel at your patience. You have told that child the same thing 20 times. Things don't change much. My thought is, well, why didn't he say something? But this is how she responded. Had I spoken the matter only 19 times, I would have lost all my labor. She had to be patient. Susanna Wesley had 17 children. Proverbs 16.32 tells us the importance that God holds on, on patience when he says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and the one who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The fourth attitude that Paul gives in Ephesians 4.3 is similar to patience. It is to show a tolerance or forbearance of one another in love. This word means to endure, to bear up, to overlook differences. And I don't know if you've noticed, but take a look around you. We are quite different from one another. Not just in age or gender or, or in our languages or how we've grown up or where we've come from. But we also have different personalities, right? We have different gifts. We have different abilities. We have different ways that, that we're strong and, and other areas that we're weak. We're all different. Every one of us. But that means we need to cut one another some slack. And make a decision to love in spite of those differences. And even ask God to help you love those differences. It is a good thing that we're not all exactly the same. It is a good thing. I mean, can you imagine if we all looked like Kendall and acted like Kendall? Actually, that might be a good thing, actually. (laughs) No, but it's good that we're distinct, that we're unique, that we're different. And we need to be forbearing not only of those differences in one another, but also and especially when we are sinned against. We must have the attitude of patience that doesn't seek to respond in kind, but wants to cover that offense. That applies Proverbs 10, 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Forbearance has this attitude, a a desire not to make an issue of it, a desire to to cover, to forgive. You guys have all heard 1 Corinthians 13 and some of the attributes. Love does not take into account what? A wrong suffered. Love bears most things. Uh, All things, excuse me. Yeah, all things. Right? Love endures all things. And we are so quick, aren't we, to point out when we're sinned against? We so readily draw attention to a wrong suffered rather than overlooking the offense. But you know what? Wouldn't you want someone to overlook an offense that you committed against another? When you've offended or sinned against someone else, how would you want them to treat you? How would you want them to approach you? If they came to you in anger and wrath and yelling and screaming and calling you names, would that inspire you to restoration? Thank you, brother, for calling me that name. That, you know what, I, I just, I want to be reconciled. Please forgive me. Is that what it would produce? No, come on. If they returned your wrong with another wrong, would that preserve unity? If, if they treated you harshly or rudely, would that encourage you to seek repentance? No. 
It would not, right? A harsh word stirs up anger. You want to be treated gently and with forbearance. Is that how you treat others, especially when they've sinned against you? You remember that parable that Jesus gave of the unmerciful slave in Matthew 18, where he's talking about forgiveness, and there was a slave who owed this huge sum of money to the king, and the king summoned him into his presence and said, you need to pay up now. And what did that guy do? You remember, he, he hit the dirt and he said, have patience, be merciful with me. And the king did what? He forgave him, right? And what did that guy then do? He went out, found a fellow slave who owed him some money. And that fellow slave did the exact same thing, right? He said, have patience with me, have mercy, I'll pay it back. And what did the guy do? He said, no way, bub, pay up or you're going to prison. Same guy who'd been shown mercy and patience by the king, turned around and treated a fellow slave the oppositely. And though that slave begged him for mercy, none was shown. If you've wronged someone either inadvertently or on purpose, you'd want them to show you mercy, wouldn't you? I would. You'd want them to be patient with you, right? But oh, how often do we act like that unmerciful slave? And I ask myself, you know, why is that? Why is it so easy for me to be quickly offended and unmerciful and not patient and then expect it from others? Am I really that important? Am I really that much greater than everyone else where I deserve patience, but but nobody else does? I mean, there's no one greater than God, right? And who has shown the most patience to us of anyone in history? Right? Martin Lloyd-Jones nailed it when he said, If God were not long-suffering, not one of us would still be alive. Not one of us would be a Christian. If God were not long-suffering, there would be no Christianity at all. He's right. Exodus 34 talks about God being slow to anger. That's literally long of nose. He takes a deep breath before responding. A lesson to learn there. We need to be people with big noses. (laughs) To be patient, forbearing. Because if God had no patience with you, what kind of life would you have? Think about that. If God were impatient, quick to anger, not forbearing, Cultivate a heart that overlooks offenses. Now, that doesn't mean to ignore sin. That's not saying that you should not confront others in sin. But the point is, is your attitude and desire one that's forbearing and overlooking, one that desires for that person to be reconciled to God and to you? And if it is, then you will come to them in gentleness. But if your desire is to extract vengeance, if your desire is to to make them feel and understand how much it hurts you, you won't come to them in gentleness. You won't be patient. You won't be humble. Seek to be these four qualities. Humble, gentle, patient, showing forbearance to one another in love. These are the key to our path to preserving unity within this body. And if you find them lacking, if you look at this list yourself and one or two of these do bring a pang to your own heart, say, oh man, I am so far on that one. Then remember the example of our Lord Think upon how God has been humble and gentle and patient and forbearing with you. That will encourage you to do the same. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 
Jesus himself said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. If you're coming to Christ and you're struggling in sin, you feel guilty. You've done things against others. You've done things against God. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll slap you around and fix you. He says, no, if that's where you're at, come to me. For I'm humble. I will treat you with gentleness. I will give you rest. That is the character of God. For those who are repentant and those who are burdened, Jesus brings rest through his humility and his gentleness. Despite how we've treated him, despite what we've done to him. Colossians 3.12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness. And listen, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. Same four attributes. Forgiving each other, whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Forgiving there is the word grace. He's saying literally grace one another, just as God has graced you. That is what will move and motivate us. And remember this, anything God has commanded us to do, he will empower us to do it. He doesn't give us any command and then leave us to figure it out and try to do it on our own. If you rely on the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, God will enable you to to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be forbearing. Things that are impossible apart from that walk with the Lord. And after presenting the path to unity in verses 2 and 3, Paul then abruptly gives the purpose of unity in several short phrases. Look here in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, some of your Bibles, your translation may have those first two words, there is, in italics. That simply means that the translators have added those two words and they're not in the original. Actually, Paul didn't write a connector between verses 3 and 4. There's no since or for or because or and or but. So the translators add those two words to kind of smooth out the translation. But Paul immediately and abruptly moves to verse 4. It would read like this more literally. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. One body and one spirit, just as also you were called. It's immediate. It's abrupt. I think Paul's trying to emphasize a point here. And then in verses 4 to 6, he fires off several phrases in rapid succession, all beginning with the word one. And in fact, of those seven times he says one, he uses three different Greek words that mean one. You see, Paul's trying to give a clear emphasis on unity here. And the question is, well, what do these uh, these three verses have to do with what he's been talking about? What are these short phrases? How are they connected to verses one through three? Well, let's first consider what these phrases mean, and then we'll try to, to bring understanding to their connection. Some say verses 4 to 6 are an early church hymn or part of a confession or a creed, but we don't know for sure. But one thing that we can see from them is there is a a thematic structure to them. If you look at these three verses, did you notice the reference to each member of the Trinity? Verse 4 mentions the Spirit. Verse 5, the Lord, or that's a common term for a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 6, the Father is mentioned. Do you notice, too, that 
Paul likely begins, he begins with the Spirit, right? He probably does that because that is who he just talked about and mentioned in verse 3. And that is the focus here in this paragraph. Unity that has been brought about by whom? It's the Spirit, right? So I think he naturally begins with the Holy Spirit. And notice, too, that the phrases that are attached around each member of the Trinity actually have to do with or correspond to that member of the Trinity's activity within our lives and in our salvation. For example, body and calling relate to the Spirit in verse 4. In verse 5, faith and baptism relate to the Lord. And verse 6, overall, through all, and in all relate to the Father. And Paul begins in verse 4 with the phrase, one body. His favorite metaphor for the church. In fact, in Ephesians 4, these first 16 verses, he mentions one body uh, four different times. It is the body that is formed, the living organism made up of all believers, brought about when we are saved, when we repent and believe, and God transforms and converts us. He, he by His Spirit, merges us into one body. Just as 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And that's why I think the very next phrase he says is one spirit. It is that same Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. One who is not a force, but a person, right? One who is the same essence of the Father and the Son. And Paul's talked about the Holy Spirit a lot in Ephesians, hasn't he? Several examples and several explanations of various activities that the Holy Spirit has done in the lives of believers. Right? He seals us as God's child. He gives us access to the Father and assists in our prayers. He forms believers into one unified dwelling of God. He reveals truth and gives us the weapon of the word to help us defend against the evil one. The Holy Spirit strengthens us to live out the Christian life. And then Paul gives another connection to the Holy Spirit here in verse 4 in the very next phrase when he says, One hope of your calling. Because it is the Holy Spirit that brings about and and, and enacts the calling of God to salvation. He's the one that transforms the heart. He's the one that places us as members in one body. That is the calling, our salvation and our placement within the church. And the one hope that all believers share is the eager expectation to see God complete the work He's done, right? We all share the same hope of our inheritance. We all share the same hope of God making right the universe of punishing and dealing with sin and bringing about salvation to those whom he has saved. Then in Paul, uh, in verse 5, Paul looks to the second member of the Trinity when he begins with the statement, One Lord. This is the term most used by the apostles to refer to Christ. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul refers to Jesus as Lord over 20 times. And I think he uses it here to emphasize that Jesus is the Lord and the Master, the one we all answer to. He is the only one judge. He is the only one head of the church. He is the only one Savior. Just as Romans 10, 12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's because there's... Not multiple paths to salvation, but only one. There's only one Lord. There's only one Savior. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And Ephesians has shown us, Jesus, He's the only one that will bring redemption. He's the only one that will bring salvation. He's the only one that brings reconciliation. There's no other. And that's the message of truth that Paul refers to in the very next phrase in verse 5. One faith. 
one faith. Some see this as subjective faith, that the believer's faith in Christ. That is the more common usage of the word faith in the New Testament. But I think here he's talking about the objective faith. The, the body of doctrine, particularly and specifically the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one faith. There's only one body of doctrine. One truth by which we must be saved. One message by which we can know God and be forgiven. I think it's objective here particularly because every other phrase is objective. And also too in verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul refers to the unity of the faith. Again, the objective sense there. The message handed down to believers from the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And just as there's only one Lord, there's only one gospel. There is only one message of hope. There is only one truth. There's not a separate gospel depending on where you grew up. There's not a separate gospel depending on how old you are, your background. There's not a separate gospel whether you're Jew or Gentile. It is the same message. There aren't several ways to be forgiven, right? There's only one. You know Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's salvation in no one else. And friend, if you think you can make it to heaven without believing in Christ, you're wrong. If you think that you can earn salvation by doing enough good, that, that good and evil are like on a scale, and if you get enough good, you're okay, you're wrong. If you think that all religions essentially say the same thing and worship the same God, you're wrong. If you think that you can get to God in many different ways, you're wrong. There's only one Lord. There's only one Savior. There's only one faith. The Bible's very clear on that. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your hearts God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. That is the message. That is the heart of the gospel. That's the only truth that will save you. To submit to Jesus Christ alone as Lord and to believe that the work God did, the work that He did on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sins and that God ordained it, that God sanctified it, that God approved of it by raising Jesus from the dead. That is the one faith. Paul then says in verse 5, after that there's one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Some think that he's referring there to water baptism, others to baptism by the Spirit. But I think what he's talking about there is this idea of of, uh, baptism, a union with Christ, identifying with Christ. Baptism, we have to remember, that's a word that has been transliterated from the Greek word baptizo. They didn't translate it. They just transliterated it. Really what you need to do is every time you see baptism, you need to insert the word immersion. That's its primary meaning is to be immersed. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, many of the uses of immersion were in water as a response to the gospel, right? As Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But we have to remember that immersion was a, a way, a symbol to show that you're being immersed in Christ. For when the person goes down into the water, you no longer see that person anymore, right? All you see is the water. And that's the same idea with a believer, that he's immersed in Christ. There's union identification with him. Paul talks about this in Romans 6, when he says in verse 3, and I'm going to replace the word baptized there with immersed. Or do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ have been immersed into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through immersion into death. 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, Paul's talking there not about a water baptism, a water immersion, but being immersed in, in identifying with Christ, being put into union with him. I think that's what... Paul's referring to here that one baptism, that, that one event when you are immersed, when you are identified, when you're placed in the body of Christ, when you are now one in Christ. And then lastly, in verse 6, Paul refers to the third uh, person of the Trinity, actually the first, uh, God the Father. He went in reverse order from the Holy Spirit, the Son, and then the Father. And he says here that that God is the father of all. And I I don't think he's referring in this specific instance to all creation, though that is true. God did create all things and he has authority over all things. But what's the context here in this passage? We've been talking about the church. Paul's been addressing unity in the church. And so here he's referring specifically to believers. God is the father of all believers. He is the sovereign Lord and authority over all believers. That's what overall communicates, that he is sovereign over his children. Through all indicates that the father works through his children. Remember Ephesians 2.10, right? That he created good works for us to walk in. And the father is in all. That points to the father's indwelling of believers. So we have here uh, an expression that the father indwells the believer. And we learn in Ephesians 2 that the son, Ephesians 3, excuse me, the son indwells the believer and several passages that talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. So again, that unity with our one God, our triune God. And here Paul expresses that we have one Father who is sovereign over all believers and works through all believers and is in all believers. So that's the, each of the phrases there. Let's take a step back from those three verses for a minute. How do they fit? I mean, why does Paul identify each member of the Trinity and then these various activities related to each member of the Trinity and then put this word one in front of each one of them. What's he trying to emphasize and how does it connect to what he's been talking about in regards to unity? Well, these three verses, I think, demonstrate a vital and crucial point when we're considering unity and what its purpose is and why. What's the reason for unity? And that's because unity is ontological what that simply means is that it is part of our very nature. It's part of the nature of God and who He is. It's part of who we are and what God has done in us. The purpose or basis of unity is that our God is one. Our being is one. Our calling, our salvation, our future hope. All of them are one in nature by very essence. Unity is consistent with who God is. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father. Unity is consistent with His salvation. One hope of our calling. One faith, one baptism. Unity is consistent with the church. One body. And Paul, I think, wedges these short several phrases here so that he can emphasize that point that unity and the reason we need to pursue unity, it's bound up in the very nature of who we are and who our Maker is. You know, we talked about last week, sin. What does sin do? Sin sin separates and divides. It it makes us individuals. We dislocate ourselves from responsibility and relationship with God. And we rebel against Him because we want to be independent. We want to do our own thing. And so God, in His grace and kindness and patience, sends the Lord Jesus Christ to do what? 
to say, okay, I'll forgive you and you can go to heaven now, but you can still do your own thing. You don't have to be connected to anything else. You can stay independent. Is that what he did? Is that the reason that he died? Is that what the result is? You know, to not be unified is a total contradiction of why and how God saved us, of who he saved us to be. It completely denies the point that that he meant to draw us back into fellowship with him, to forgive us so that we could be cleansed, so that we could have unity with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and one another. It's the very nature and essence of who we are. And, And Paul, again, coming at it from a different angle, is trying to make us see that point. One Lord, one Spirit, one body. One calling, one father, one baptism, one faith. Get the point? It's like he's, he's pounding to emphasize and help us see that this is who we are. A message that's being repeated often in Ephesians, isn't it? Who we are. We must do all we can to maintain unity and not undermine it. And that is what happens as we take the path to unity to lower ourselves, to treat one another with gentleness, to be patient, to show forbearance. That is what happens when we understand the purpose of our unity, that it reflects the very nature of our God. It reflects who we are. And this happens when we use the provision for unity that Paul then talks about in verse 7. Look there with me. That provision comes in the form of gifts. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul has a conjunction there, but, because he's going to draw a contrast. He's been talking about the body as a whole. The body as, as one, collectively, unified group of believers. Now he wants to draw attention and make a distinction with the individuals within that body. He says that each one here tells us that though we are one, we're not all the same. The church is a unified body, but it's also a diverse body. We are not exact copies of one another like a a sheet of postage stamps. We're more like a puzzle. A puzzle that varying pieces of different sizes and shapes and different pictures upon them that God has designed so that they could be completely and perfectly locked together into one portrait. So that as we look at the entire puzzle, it's much more beautiful to look at a puzzle with a pretty picture on it than it is to look at a group of stamps right and that's what we are we're more like that puzzle each member uniquely gifted and notice what verse 7 says about this gifting grace was given paul says and that tells us that the gift is unearned it's not something that you have to work to achieve it's not something that you have to remind god about say hey god are you gonna can you give me a gift can you give me something that i could use No, it's given by his grace. Each one of us says all believers, every believer receives a gift. When God saves you, there's a gift with your name on it that he has ready for you to use. And Christ's gift means that the gift is divinely given. It is something that God decides to give and he decides what to give. According to the measure tells us that Christ not only determines the gift, but also the amount of it. There can be many people gifted to serve, but gifted to serve with different abilities and strengths. Many people can be gifted to teach, but have different abilities in in how they teach and how well they teach. God is the one who decides. Christ is the one who gives the gift. And Christ is the one who decides 
what it will look like. We'll talk more about gifts later as we go further in the chapter. But for now, I just want you to key in on one thing that God has given you through Christ. He has given you a gift. If you're a believer, you have a gift. God has given you something unique to be used to help this body be more like Jesus. You see, unity is active. There's a passive element to unity, which is the Holy Spirit is the one who places us into one body and makes us one. But then there's that active element. And it's like that with everything Christianity, right? There's this, there's this idea and knowledge of who we are and what God has done. But then there's an expectation God has of what we're called to do. My question to you is, what are you doing to preserve unity? How are you actively participating in keeping the unity of the Spirit? Because some think that they're preserving unity by not stirring up trouble. Some think that they're maintaining unity in the body by not creating conflict, by staying out of people's way, by, by not getting involved in others' lives so they don't have conflict, by, by keeping their nose clean. One pastor said this, he said, The unity of the church is not kept by being silent about things you disagree with. The unity of the church is not kept by make, not making trouble. It is kept by making a concerted effort to build the body of Christ into oneness. Did you catch that? It's made, unity is kept by making a concerted effort. What effort are you making to encourage unity? Christ has given you a gift, right? Are there any other Christians in this room? (laughs) Yes, right? He's given you a gift. Are you using it? Are you using it? Some of you may say, well, I not even know what it is. Is your gift still left unwrapped under the tree? You know, sometimes many people have come to me and said, I'm not sure what my gift is. And a lot of times, you know, maybe because they're a new believer, they don't understand what gifts are. Sometimes, though, people don't know what their gift is because they're not involved in the body to be using it. Some of you have no clue how God has gifted you because you don't have any relationships with anyone else here to give you a context to use the gift. It is so important that we're involved in one another's lives, as Brother Kempis exhorted us a couple of weeks ago, so that you're actively pursuing and preserving unity. Unity doesn't just happen. Brothers and sisters, stagnation or lack of effort can kill unity just as much as conflict can. Just because there's not conflict doesn't mean we're unified. I mean, think of a family that they move apart from one another. They never interact with one another again. And if you were to ask members of the family, do you have any conflict within your family? What would they say? No. Not because they're unified, because they don't spend time with one another. They're not unified. Conflict will come, brothers and sisters. We're all sinners. You put the Baptist and the Presbyterian in a cage, and yeah, it will be ugly at times. But through the power of God's Spirit, as we pursue humility, forbearance, gentleness, as we understand who we are and the nature of God and the nature of what He's done, as we pursue these things, then that will be used by God to preserve unity. And that's what God wants to see. We have to work at it, though. We cannot be passive. Christ has given you a gift as well in order to help you to preserve the unity of the faith. To preserve unity in his body. Can you commit to that? Verse 8, Paul then says, Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led captives, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it also mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also, he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now at first glance, it may seem difficult. How do these verses fit? Uh, What's Paul doing here? How are they connected to what he has just said? Well, the therefore tells us in verse 8 that he, he is going off of something he just said. I think he's referring back to verse 7 and describing why Christ has the authority and the position to give gifts. How is it that he's able to do that? And, and Paul describes the reason by presenting a picture in verse 8 of what you would see in, in ancient times if a king or, a, or a, a military leader had achieved a victory... When he would return from that victory into the city, there would be a parade. And he would march through the city with the soldiers. And behind him often there would be those that were taken captive. That would be in chains following behind in the procession. And as well, the the victor would be handing out the spoils of the battle that was won and giving gifts to those in the crowd. And that's the, the picture that Paul is presenting here is Jesus as the conqueror. The one who has ascended to be exalted to the right hand of the the Father in heaven. And that he also gives gifts. It's the same picture of him walking as the victorious conqueror. Now your Bibles may have that verse 8 in caps. Or there may be a cross reference that tells you it is a quote from Psalm 68.18. What's interesting though is if you read Psalm 68.18 it sounds a little bit different. That verse says... You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Now, these sound close, but there are some differences. And in fact, there are a couple that really stick out. Psalm 68, 18 says that you have ascended. But in Ephesians 4, 8, what does Paul say? He ascended. Psalm 68, 18 says you have received gifts from men. But what does Ephesians 4, 8 say? He gave gifts. And we don't have time to get into all the, you know, scholars love these kinds of things and they they go on and on and on. Um, I'm not going to go on and on and on. I'll just summarize for you. Um, There's numerous explanations have been offered. And I think as I mentioned some of them, you'll you'll know which ones don't don't really fit. Some say that Paul just made an error. (laughs) Right? There's no error in scripture. Some say that that Paul altered the text intentionally, changed the meaning of it so that it would fit better for what he's talking about here in Ephesians 4. But see, that would reject in the principle of single meaning, that what the author intended in Psalm 68 doesn't change. Some say that Paul was using a a version that the rabbis had updated um, and that they've taken this verse and they changed the word receive to give because they're very similar in Hebrew. And so some would assume maybe the original Hebrew manuscript wasn't wasn't correct. But that's not the case either. All of these have significant problems. I think the best way to understand Ephesians 4.8 is to, to realize Paul is not giving a direct quote here. What he is doing is summarizing Psalm 68. Because that psalm describes Yahweh as marching into, ascending the hill of Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, in victory over Israel's enemies. And the psalm talks about all through it, the gifts that he gives to his people. So I think what Paul is doing is he he took a verse that had some similar sounds and he also summarized the entire psalm like a reporter would do when they're investigating a story. They don't necessarily give 
every quotes or write out everything in that way, but sometimes they will summarize things and they will include things in that summary that may be partly a direct quote from what someone had said. And I think that's all that Paul is doing here. He is describing that picture given in Psalm 68 that Jesus gives the same picture when he gained the victory at the cross and he ascended on high to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. And those enemies, those conquered enemies of sin and Satan and death are following behind him in chains. And then what follows in Ephesians 4, 9 and 10 is simply a parenthetical statement trying to give further explanation to the analogy. Because if if Jesus ascended into heaven, what does that mean? He was on earth, right? Now, didn't Jesus start in heaven, though? So he must have descended to earth to become a man before he could ascend to be glorified as God, the son, the Lord and master of the universe, right? And that's all Paul is describing here. And I think he uses this phrase, lower parts of the earth. Some, some think it's referring to hell or Hades, but that, that would totally, that doesn't fit what he's talking about here. He's not talking about Christ visiting in hell. What he's talking about is Christ became a man and then he was put into the earth when he died, right? When did Christ gain the victory over Satan and sin and death? At the cross and when he was raised from the dead, right? Lower parts of the earth here, I think, is simply just referring to that, that Jesus becoming a man and dying as a man and being buried as a man and achieving the victory at the cross over his enemies and being exalted. Colossians 2.14 presents this picture as well, where it says, Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's where the victory was won. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. See that similar picture there? Describing Christ's victory at the cross. And that is the point in time when his enemies were publicly displayed as defeated. So Paul here is using lower parts of the earth not to draw attention to the fact, but to draw attention not to Jesus just coming to earth as a man, but being buried. Following that dissension into the grave, he's then exalted, as Paul says here, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul's whole point here, I think in verses 8 to 10, is simply to show that Christ is worthy, that he has the authority to give gifts. That he is the great conqueror. And his death on the cross and his resurrection not only brings salvation, not only brings harmony within the body, reconciliation with one another, but also that because of it, he's able to give gifts to his people. As the conquering king, as the head of the church, as the Lord and master, he deserves to be honored, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus deserve to be glorified? And the main way that we can do it is how. I heard one person say it. To preserve unity. To preserve unity. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's stem the tide of the disunity and division that's running rampant in the church today. We hear a lot about things that go wrong in the church. We don't often hear about when things go right. But there are some examples of that. Not too far away from here in Inglewood, California, uh, is one such example. Uh, our dear brother, Bobby Scott, who's going to be the men's speaker at our conference this year, he's been a pastor for over 20 years in the Inglewood area. 
And I don't I think it was about 10 years into his ministry. The church he was pastoring at decided to merge with another church. Not because both of them, one of them was bigger and wanted to absorb the other or they were interested in getting each other's property or any. They just realized that to, they were small enough that together they'd be large enough to make a greater impact in the community. And so they spent over a year working through potential issues, potential things that might create disunity. They, they spent a year getting to know one another before actually completing the merger. Two different church families being brought together. Churches often do a good job of separating and dividing. These two churches are a wonderful example of coming together. And I visited there several times, and there's such a spirit of love and unity there. Just a wonderful testimony of how the unity of the Spirit can be preserved through humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. But the story doesn't end there. In January, that church merged with another church in the Inglewood area. Again, not because they were struggling or having problems making enough money or low on numbers. They realized that as a larger church, we can be a resource to the black community, to the African-American community and all the needs that exist there. And Bobby and the leadership at his church and the leadership at another church decided this is important for this community. We need to work together. So they spent time with one another. And it's a wonderful thing. I just saw Bobby a couple days ago, and he just was so encouraged by what God is doing there. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of unity. It's a a wonderful demonstration of, of how Christ has made us one. And they're living it out. May the Lord multiply such examples of unity. May he work in our church to reflect that same kind of unity as well. So that Burbank would know that that God has sent a Savior who brings true peace and reconciliation. That they would see that because of our unity with one another, that yes, there is a God. And yes, Jesus can make a difference. We keep telling people, if you want peace in your life and reconciliation, come to Christ. Well, what's the only visible example they're going to get of what that looks like? Our body. Our body. So let's continue to pray and to work to that end. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do want to be one unified church. We know it's not just Calvary, too, Lord. We know it's the universal church. Lord, all believers around the world. Father, we are here, a local assembly, a a small little church. taste, Lord, of your body across this planet. And I pray, God, that we would reflect the unity that you have brought about through your spirit, that we would be one just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Lord, if there are any here in our body now undergoing a conflict with another that, Lord, they they know about it. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would strengthen and encourage them to seek reconciliation Lord, to encourage repentance, to to be forgiving. And Lord, that you would not let any of us here bring shame to your name by creating division, by tearing down what you have built. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, our conquering King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.